The rest of us this morning are going to be looking at the gospel according to Luke, so the gospel of Jesus according to Luke, and we're going to look at a passage in the 18th chapter, and if you're just joining us today, as a church we've been studying the life and ministry of Jesus, and specifically Luke's account, and so we're working our way through the whole book, and today we're in the 18th chapter, so you can join right in with us. This last week I attended an awards banquet where a friend of mine was uh, making a presentation for an employee uh, at this corporation. Uh, there were hundreds of people in the room. Uh, everyone was excited to be there. It was a free lunch um, for all the employees at the business. And uh, my friend got up and made a, a tasteful, thoughtful, appropriate presentation talking about this particular employee and everyone applauded appropriately so and uh, it was a it was an honorific kind of time. Imagine with me, if you would, what it would have been like um, if my friend would have stood up in front of those hundreds of people, and if he would have said, "I need to let all of you know a couple of very important things. First of all, I need to let everyone who's here today know." that there's no such thing as a good person. Oh, and by the way, I also need to let you know that heaven is unachievable by any man or woman. Now, I'm that guy's friend. Imagine how I would have felt sitting there if he would have said that. I would have thought, I'm not talking to him afterward, right? The last thing in the world I would have wanted to do is what I did, and I was so happy to see him afterward and to talk to him and, and hang out with him and catch up, and we hadn't seen each other for a long time. I would have thought, what a jerk. You know, this is an awards banquet for, for, for all of these things that these employees do. And, and I would have thought, I don't want to be associated with that guy. And, and, and what in the world is he, what, why did he say there are no good people, and why would he say that heaven is unachievable? Right? You would have felt like me? You would have thought, whoa, who in the world is that guy? He would have gotten booed off the stage. People would have thrown their salads at the guy probably. Well, some of you know the Bible well enough to know that the scenario isn't altogether fabricated. Because Jesus, in a very different setting, talking about spiritual matters, talking about human beings and their relationship to God, said in effect, in the ultimate sense, there's no such thing as a good person, which, which offended people. And he also said, in effect, there's no way any human being could achieve heaven. And that was offensive too. Again, it wasn't an awards banquet where you're supposed to award people for good behavior. It was more of a religious kind of context, but it was offensive nevertheless. And we're in Luke 18, so we're going to see it today. We're going to see it today. We're going to look at Luke 18, verses 18 through 30. And I suppose as you're, as you're turning there or, or scrolling there, whatever you're doing, um, it's at least worth me saying, why would Jesus do this? Why on earth would he, would he tell people that people aren't good? Why on earth would he tell people that heaven is unachievable? It's really important that he do that because what he wants to do is have everyone understand who he is. 
Because in order to understand who Jesus is, not the Jesus of fairy tales, not the Jesus of agendas, but to really understand the historic Jesus as we're seeing him, you've got to understand that he came to seek and save the lost. Okay? People who were in desperate need. And if we don't understand that, we, we will never really understand who he is. He'll become our life coach, maybe. Um, he'll become our psychiatrist, maybe, or psychologist, maybe, or something like that. But he'll never be who he really is, and, and he's a savior. Um, he came to seek and save the lost, to rescue people who need to be rescued, people like you and people like me. But in order for us to get that, we're probably going to be offended because we're not going to be told that we're good and we're not going to be told that we can get her done. And so I'm willing to offend you by saying that even so that you hopefully will see who Jesus really is and you can have real hope and confidence not in yourself. With me? I can talk a little bit longer. You won't throw your salads at me. Um, Okay, let's jump right in. You don't really need an outline this morning. We're just going to work our way through verses 18 to 30 with some comments as we go, some application as we go, but I don't really want to impose an artificial kind of outline on it. So let's jump right in. Uh, You'll be offended quick. Uh, Verse 18 says, And a ruler asked him, Matthew's context tells us he's a rich ruler, a ruler asked him, asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we have to just stop right there and say, I so wish somebody would ask me that question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, talk about teeing up the ball and just ready to crush it. That's perfect. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It doesn't get any better than that. At least if you're talking to a Christian, talking to Jesus... Maybe before we get to the answer, though, what would, a t- what would your answer be? I mean, a kind of a typical answer would be, you know, believe in Jesus. That's a good answer, by the way. Um, but apart from a bigger context, that might prove, follow with me if you would, just to say to this guy, believe in Jesus, might prove more harmful in the long run if you don't really know who Jesus is, if you don't really know what he came to do, If you don't really know who God is, if you don't really know who you are in relationship to God, to say, here's what you must do, pray this prayer, repeat after me, might actually prove more harmful. I think that's probably why Jesus doesn't say something like that. Isn't it interesting by way of contrast, last week, and again, if you weren't here, you can catch right up, uh, last week we saw someone in verse 13 crying out to God for mercy. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, a lawbreaker. And Jesus is the one who points to that person as the one who's, who's really on, to, on the right track. And here this guy, what must I do? We just saw by way of contrast, someone saying that in effect they couldn't do anything, they needed God to do something. It's very different. Okay, here we go. Hope your tray tables are up and your seats are forward and your seatbelts are on. Look what it says in verse 19. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. 
Hello. <laughs> I mean, it's like, first of all, I don't think Jesus is denying his own goodness. Um, I don't think he's denying relative goodness. The Bible definitely talks about relative goodness. We're not all acting as badly as we could at all times. We do general good, but in a, in a pure, true sense, Jesus wants to put his finger on, on that guy's heart and say, why do you call me good? God and God alone is good. And no doubt, looking at the bigger picture in the context, here's a guy who thinks he's good. And he thinks he's good enough to do something that God will accept him. And so Jesus has got to go right for the heart of the matter and say, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Okay then. What's interesting is Jesus isn't making this stuff up. I mean, the Old Testament teaches people are, are sinful. The New Testament teaches people are sinful. Jesus came for sinners. Sin means breaking God's commands. Okay, um, God's commands, by the way, in essence, Jesus boils it all down to say to love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's all of your faculties, all of your sincerity, all that you are, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, I'm guilty of not doing those things. God says everyone is guilty of not doing those things. In that pure, true sense, no one is good in the ultimate sense. That's why Romans in the New Testament talks, talks about that in Romans 3. Psalm 14 talks about that in the Old Testament. That's why we need a Savior. And Jesus needs this guy, wants this guy to see that he needs a Savior, not just his own abilities. Then there's an important thing that Jesus says next. He has a fundamental wrong understanding of goodness in a pure sense. And so Jesus offers a really good, important response. Here we go. How about verse 20? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And as one former pastor of mine said, that's about enough to get you kicked out of most Bible colleges. Okay? <laughs> I mean, you get an F on your paper if you say that's how you get eternal life. But it's so helpful, I think, if we're patient here to see that Jesus has a strategy. He's doing this on purpose because if he just says, believe in me, what is he believing in Jesus for? Instead, what Jesus says is, do the law. And interestingly enough, he picks the easy side. I mean, the tough side would be love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He just gives a sampling of love your neighbor stuff. You want eternal life? Do what God says. Now again, that should be enough to get us to go, oh man, I know in my heart of hearts, I, I, I don't really know, love my neighbor as myself. I mean, I'm better at it than some other people are, but in a pure, true sense, motives included, it should cause us to say, yeah, I, I've, I've got a problem. I, I can't do that. I'm not actually totally good in that sense the right response here would be like the response we saw in the earlier verses God be merciful to me a sinner a lawbreaker I'm so busted 
To be honest, a lot of nice things I do actually are for self-serving motives. Sorry. (laughs) Right? That would be the right response. Jesus wants this guy to feel the same way that other guy felt. But verse 21 says, And he said, All these I've kept from my youth. That's where you write in your margin. Delusional. Right? But we're delusional a lot. This guy would have known all kinds of biblical data given his culture, given who he was. He would have known all kinds of verses. He may have been forced as a child to memorize Psalm 14. They would have him know that he's actually not purely, truly good to measure up to God's standards. But, but we, we know lots of data, right? It's interesting that you don't need to go there, but to love your neighbor, which is what Jesus is calling him to do in a perfect way, is from Leviticus 19. It's from the Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's so interesting, Leviticus, we don't usually think when we think Leviticus, what's Leviticus about? Oh, that's where we're told to love our neighbor. Okay, we don't think like that. What do people think of when they think of Leviticus if they have some, at least some basic Bible knowledge? Sacrifices. It's blood and guts and gore. Sacrifice, 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 sacrifice. Isn't it ironic, isn't it interesting that in the very book in the Old Testament that gives us love your neighbor as yourself, it's all about sacrifices. Well, who needs sacrifices? Perfectly good, inherently good people? No. Lawbreakers need sacrifices. You need atonement. You need to atone for your sin. So yeah, you're called to love your neighbor, but guess what? There's this, there's this elephant in the room. You're not going to do it. You're going to need atonement. You're going to need atonement. And now I'm going to jump around a little bit. Mentally, in Hebrews, in the New Testament, we have uh, an interpretation, if you will, of Leviticus, that it was all designed to aim us and to, to, to point our, our focus, our trajectory, if you want to use a fancy word, to Christ. Yeah, we don't love our neighbor. We're, we're, we're not inherently purely good. So we need atonement in an ultimate sense. We need a Savior. We need Christ. This guy would have known Leviticus 19. He would have known all about the sacrificial system. It should have been staring him in the face. And yet, yet he doesn't say, I, I can't do it. He said, yeah, I did. I'm a good person. It's just bizarre. That's how we should be seeing this. But it's bizarre that in church life, the most recent study that was just put out by uh, Lifeway and Legionnaire Academy last month finds that 70% of American churchgoers think that people are inherently good. Okay? 70% of people who go to church on a regular basis think that people are inherently good and that God will accept them because of their inherent goodness. Bizarre. Bizarre. I mean, there's a reason why there's a giant cross behind me in the Christian church of Omaha Bible Church. I mean, it's kind of like the Leviticus system of the sacrifice. And, and you should love your neighbor. Well, guess what? I don't love my neighbor, so I need atonement. And, and they were people who should know better, and, and we were people who should know better. 
And yet we think people are inherently good. Well, I want to say guys, friends, we don't need Jesus if we're inherently good. Jesus wants this man to see that he has a law-breaking problem. So he has a problem with God. And so he will see Jesus for who he is and embrace Jesus as his, as his Savior. But if we here, like now in the church, don't get this, how can we be good ambassadors? How can we tell other people about who Jesus is when we don't even need Jesus? And so I don't think Jesus is being mean. I think he's being kind and gracious and loving and compassionate, trying to get this guy to get in touch with reality. Let's keep going. Verse 22. No, I can't go yet. Hold on. One more, one more thing, which is every pastor's lie. One more thing. Um, one of my biggest burdens and frustrations as a Christian pastor, and I'm, it just drives me crazy, and as a Christian, is I have such a hard time communicating with people who don't know much about the Bible, about sin. You feel my pain at all? I mean, it's just really hard to, to, to get through and make it clear. And, and it's one of the things I want to do so badly because, quite honestly, that will never make sense. If guilt for violating God's commandments doesn't make sense. It's just hard. But it's what we have to do. I mean, and, and it's like going up to somebody and telling them that their kids are ugly. I mean, <laughs> or, or I mean, just something super offensive. I mean, to, to, again, to, to, when seventy percent of the church says that people are inherently good before God, uh, what, you know, hello. What about people who don't go to church? It's just—it's a tough one. I'm not saying I, I'm going to give up. I can't give up, and you can't give up. But it's something you pray about. It's something you work at, and, and you try to make clear. Because Jesus doesn't make any sense. We'll relegate him again to life coach or something. But if he came just to do that, why on earth was he crucified? doesn't make sense. And I really want people to understand who Jesus is. And I really want you to understand who Jesus is if you don't, so that you can see that you need him and you need him to represent you before God who is good and perfect. Because you're not. So I do like these passages, even though they make us uncomfortable, because hopefully they get us uh, more accustomed and more used to dealing with the age-old problem of thinking of people thinking they're good. Okay, thanks for letting me get that off my chest. Thanks for being my life coach um, and counselors. Let's go to number, uh, verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, I, I think he should say, you idiot, but he doesn't. Um, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Take the verse out of context and you can make the Bible say anything you want. 
But in the bigger picture, you've got to say, why did Jesus say that? Is this salvation by poverty? I've joked about this before, but how would that work? So if I have money, uh, in order to gain eternal life, I just have to give it all away. And I'm going to give it to you, and now you're going to go to hell. Because you have money. And so now you've got to give it to some poor person who was going to go to heaven, but now they're going to go to hell because you gave them money. And uh, it's like musical chairs. And, and, you know, whenever, whoever doesn't have a chair to sit in when the music stops goes to hell. It, it doesn't make any sense. Furthermore, it doesn't make any sense because in chapter 19, we're going to see Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, you know, who was the wee little man. A wee little man was he. I, I learned something in church growing up. Not much, um, but I remember that song. Zacchaeus actually is wealthy. And Zacchaeus makes good on his immoral use of money, but he doesn't give all of his money away. And it says he has eternal life. Again, context, context, context. You don't have to give all your money away to gain eternal life. But this guy did. That's what's important. Jesus knows this guy. Jesus knows this guy's heart. Jesus knows the guy's lying. He hasn't kept the commandments perfectly. There's no way he's done that because people are are sinful. And, and, And so Jesus is pushing him. He's pressing him so that hopefully he'll see his guilt. He's like, okay, you've kept all the commandments. You know, yeah, right. You've kept all the commandments. All right, here's what I want you to do. Give away all your money. He knows he doesn't really love his neighbor as himself. But he's going to test him on it. All right, put your money where your mouth is. Give away all your money and we'll see if you love your neighbor. That's why I say for this guy, yeah, he did have to. Again, you can read this as, man, Jesus sure is mean. Or you can read it as, Jesus sure is kind and patient. He's pushing him to where he needs to be so he can see he's desperate. That's why he gives him the law. And when he says he's kept the law, Jesus knows he hasn't. So he just gives him more. To the point where now the guy says, you know what, this isn't for me. Isn't it interesting that the guy said, what must I do to gain eternal life, good teacher? Well, the good teacher said, here's what you must do. And he says, no. His number one priority really isn't gaining eternal life, apparently. Salvation is only by God's grace. It's only through Christ. But this guy needs to see his need for Christ, and he hasn't seen his need. I think if Jesus would have said to him, what you need to do to gain eternal life, let me just give you the answer. You just need to, to, to trust in me. Okay. Is there a card I need to sign? Is there an aisle I need to walk down? No, he needs to make sure he really understands who Jesus is. Okay, verse 24. Let's keep going. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. How hard is that? It's impossible. It's impossible. 
Some people say, well, it's not really impossible. Back in the first century, they had these gates that were called needle gates, and it would be really hard to get a camel through those kinds of gates. In fact, some of you who are going to Israel with us in February will go to a certain place in Nazareth, and they'll show you a needle gate. And I'll take everybody aside and say, look at the passage closer. It's impossible. It's not really hard to get the camel through the eye of a needle. And he's not talking about a needle gate. I know he's not. Because look what it says in verse 26. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Verse 27. But he said, what is, here's our key word, impossible with man is possible with God. It's impossible. He's making the point, not just about rich people. First he starts with rich people, but then he, he broadens it. When the people say, who can be saved? He says, impossible. Isn't that interesting? Come to church to find out people aren't good. Not coming back to that church. They didn't even make me feel good. And come to church to find out that salvation is humanly impossible. I, I'm watching football next week. <laughs> What's the point then? But once again... He wants everyone to understand their predicament before God, lack of goodness, ultimate goodness, not relative goodness. Furthermore, their predicament with God that they themselves absolutely, positively cannot bridge the gap. It's impossible. Impossible. It's like getting a camel through the eye of a needle. Anymore, without my glasses on, I can't thread a needle to begin with in doing this. Somebody taught me something helpful the other day, though, at a restaurant. They said, when you can't, because I couldn't read the, the, the bill to, to give the right tip. So they took a picture of it with their phone and then went, and made it bigger. It's awesome. It wouldn't work with threading a needle. But it's hard enough to get a thread through the eye of a needle. It's impossible to get a camel through the eye of a needle. It's impossible for you to gain eternal life. Because God requires obedience to His law to gain eternal life. It's not happy. It's not positive. It's bad news. But you won't understand the good news unless you understand the bad news. And so, make sure you see what it says in verse 27. The good news is in verse 27 as well. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Let me really try to push, okay? It's impossible for you to gain eternal life based upon anything you do. Because God requires perfection. God's not a compromiser. He has integrity as a judge. And He has a law. So a God who has integrity, who has a law, He's not going to say, Oh, I know, I said that, but it's no big deal. It's impossible. But that's where you can say, but what is possible is for God to supernaturally intervene. Now this is setting this guy up. It's setting us up to really understand who Jesus is because Jesus comes to earth and he loves his father with heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loves his neighbor as himself perfectly. Then, crazily enough, 
Amazingly enough, he voluntarily goes to the cross to be treated as if he were a lawbreaker to atone for, to pay for all who would trust in him. It's amazing. It's amazing. But he doesn't make sense if you don't understand the predicament you're in before a good God when you're not good. But if you do understand that, you can understand Jesus can understand Jesus. I love Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 5 because it says we were spiritually dead. We were spiritually dead and we were walking in our spiritual deadness. You know, it's the classic horror movie. You're dead spiritually, but you're walking. It's the walking dead. More brains. That's us spiritually. Okay? By nature, children of wrath, it says. And then in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, my favorite two words in the whole Bible, my favorite word in the whole Bible is the word but. Because Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says, but God. See, God steps in and God intervenes, but that would never make sense if you didn't understand your lack of true goodness. God provides, steps in and provides true goodness. That's why we talk about grace and that's why we talk about Jesus. And To be quite honest with you, many people you know and many people I know don't understand that. And so you can do your very best by God's grace to help them understand that. But God... Okay, let's wrap up. Verse 28. And Peter said, yeah, he has a habit of doing that. Um, And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. Yeah, 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 Peter. Okay. Um, Verse 29. "And, And he said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Yes, Peter, I know, and, and you're, you're right, and, and you've trusted in me for who I really am, and even though it's been costly on your relationships and other things, it's true. It's true, Peter. You're on the right team. You've got this figured out. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll answer you. Uh, and it really is true. So we can be thankful for people who open their mouths, uh, maybe more often than they should, like Peter does a lot. And Jesus can affirm him. He can affirm people like you and people like me and say, you know what, it's true. It's, it's more valuable. It's greater in the long run. Um, but I wouldn't want to make too much out of, of what he says there other than what he's saying is, is true. Let's end with this and, and let's just remember um, what the Apostle Paul says in interpreting all this. Jesus is the righteous. That means... Obeyer of God's law. It means good one. He's the righteous. And he came for the unrighteous. Sinners. Violators. I have to tell you, I've never loved God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly ever. I know I haven't. And I've never loved my neighbor as myself perfectly ever. I'm the lawbreaker. And so God patiently, kindly 
graciously sends his son Jesus to do those things perfectly for me. But I've got to see that I haven't done them in order to see my need for him. And then to see my need for him to go to the cross on my behalf. And then I want to join Christians throughout all eternity and all the ages and acknowledging that worthy is the Lamb who was slain. He's worthy. He's worthy. He's worthy. We're not worthy. That's why we worship Christ who loved us and gave Himself up for us so that He might, I love the wording, bring us to God. It's great. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for a a little bit of time of Bible study together as we worship You even with our minds and we study Your Word together. We're thankful. We're thankful that Jesus came here. We know He didn't come here to affirm the human race. He came here to rescue the human race. And we're thankful that He did that. Uh, We're thankful that you've softened hearts even in this room so that we might affirm Christ and even acknowledge our need for him. And our prayer and desire would be that those that we know and those that we care about uh, would also have softened hearts, that they would be willing to acknowledge that they are needy spiritually and that they might see Jesus for who he really is and rest in him and him alone. Encourage us as we go. Help us to be good ambassadors. Uh, We know that we're not perfect, so help us not to point to ourselves, uh, but to point to a perfect Savior whose name is Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen.